Good morning. You know, uh, everyone here today could tell a story. Each person in this room has a story. Some of them may sound more dramatic than others, but every story has some good times, some joy, some success. But every story also involves some hurt and betrayal and disappointment. Sometimes our lives feel like an emotional roller coaster with things just going up and down, good times followed by, shattered by uh, the hard times, by betrayal of somebody we trust, by some pain, some confusion in our lives. Now, many of you here uh, have gone through the sense of abandonment by a parent who died when you were still young. Uh, Many of you have even been... uh, through the confusion and betrayal of, of uh, emotional neglect or even abuse as a child. Many of you only superficially survived your parents' divorce. Many of you have been uh, betrayed, wounded deeply by a boyfriend or girlfriend, a husband or wife. Many of you have uh, suffered loss, of a, even a child. Many of you have been stabbed in the back by a friend or somebody at work and have have lost your job. Many of you have lost the uh, love of a teenage son or daughter who's living in sin and rebellion. Many of you have uh, gone through the confusion and hurt of, of long illness in your family. All of us have been through pain. All of us have been hurt. And like I said, sometimes life feels like a roller coaster. The good times really just are the setup for the, uh, the next valley, the next plummet, the next fall. And our emotions just go up and down with the circumstances and relationships around us. Uh, quite a few years back, I read a book that developed this theme about life being a roller coaster. The name of the book was Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. But we can't get off. And if we've got to ride this out, how do we survive? Last Sunday night, uh, there was a concert here for the evening service uh, with Jillian Ryan. And during her presentation, Jillian shared some of her story. It was almost overwhelming, the, the, the virtually inconceivable pain and suffering she went through. Uh, she told of being abandoned as an infant, of the, the physical and emotional and sexual abuse she suffered, betrayal by every adult she ever knew. A betrayal by her first husband. Just circumstance after circumstance of how life smashed her down. Yet there she was to proclaim God's goodness. To to magnify His mercy. To to praise His name. His wonderful, wonderful love for her. You know, here she stood in in front of us filled with joy, peace, love. Even for those who had so badly used her. Now, there's a secret somewhere in there. Somehow, she came through it all filled with these kinds of things, rather than filled with bitterness and hatred and resentment, rather than being destroyed and torn apart. You know, at several points during her story, I I cried just to think of a little girl going through that kind of pain. And there were a lot of people crying that night, but not all of them for Jillian. Many of them crying for themselves because they had been through similar experiences or even worse. Well, this morning I want to tell you about a young man from a seriously dysfunctional family. He, uh, his mother died when he was very young. 
He had ten stepbrothers who hated him and mistreated him. They even threw him in a well one time for several days. His whole family was a mess. His uncle had tried to kill his father once. His, he had a brother who was in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. His sister had been raped. Two of his brothers were murderers. I mean, the guy's from a messed up family. And he had been badly mistreated and hurt. But as we see him grow into a man, what we see emerge is a man of strength and wisdom who wins the admiration, respect of everyone who knows him. We don't see the emotional and relational cripple we would expect. We don't see a man consumed with bitterness and hatred and selfishness. Instead, we see a man who is healthy and wise, loving, sensitive. And the reason I want to look at his life is because I want to figure out how you and I can ride this roller coaster we call life and not get splatted all over the boardwalk. Come through it with this kind of dignity and respect and self-respect, peace that, that, that this young man came through life with. And the person that I'm talking about is Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham who we looked at last week. Joseph was the tenth son out of twelve sons of Jacob. Uh, Joseph's wife, or Joseph's mother, Rachel, was Jacob's favorite wife. She had died giving birth to Joseph's little brother, Benjamin. And so Joseph was the pet. Joseph was his dad's favorite. And unfortunately, Jacob did nothing to conceal this, which only bred resentment in the other boys and arrogance in Joseph. His dad would give him things that he wouldn't give to the others. He, he would keep Joseph at home when he sent the others to work out in the field. And his brothers grew to hate him. We see Joseph acting like a, a spoiled little brother. He would tattle on his brothers when he, they weren't doing what he thought they were supposed to be doing. Uh, he just seemed self-absorbed, arrogant, selfish, and self-consumed like any spoiled child. Well, then came the time he had a dream. Actually, a couple of dreams. He, he dreamed that um, all of his brothers were represented by a bundle of wheat. And they all bowed down to him. And then his next dream, his brothers were all stars. And his father was the sun. And his mother, was, or his stepmother was the moon. And they all bowed down to him. And as he went around telling everybody these dreams, boy, everyone resented him. Even his father thought, this is outrageous. We're told that his brothers there in Genesis 37, says his brothers hated him all the more because of the dream and because of what he had said. It wasn't just that he had these egotistical dreams, man. He could have kept it to himself, but he had to blab it around, flaunt it. So they hated him. Shortly after that, his brothers were out in the field several miles, a couple days away from uh, from where his father was. And his father sends Joseph out to check on him, see how they're doing. Joseph has some difficulty finding him, but when he does find him, they see him coming, and they say, this is our chance to get rid of this guy. Realize this is a rough bunch. Two of his brothers had, had murdered almost an entire village. When they see Joseph coming, they say, now's our chance to kill him too. They say, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these wells and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we will see what comes of his dreams. Joseph's oldest brother, Reuben, kind of talks him down. He says, okay, we're still going to kill him, but let's not kill him first. Let's throw him in the pit first and then just let him die there. So that's their idea. That's their plan. They throw him into the pit. 
And there Joseph pleads for his life. And he cries out to them. And they pay absolutely no attention. They turn a cold, deaf ear toward him. It was down at the bottom of that well that Joseph has to face himself for the first time. You know, all of his privilege is gone. All of his his self-image, his his sense of importance is shattered. All of his hopes are gone. No one will listen to him. Nobody hears him except for God. The God of his great-grandfather Abraham and his grandfather Isaac and his father Jacob. And they're down in that pit, down at the bottom of that well. Joseph learns a couple of very important lessons. First thing that he learns is that the only one you can really count on is God. No one else can be there for you. His father couldn't be there for him. His father didn't know. The only one you can really count on is God. And God is the one you can really count on. Another thing that's important for us to understand is that circumstances don't put things into us. They draw things out of us. See, what's in us is already there. And the difficult things, the hurtful things, the horrible things that we go through, just draw it out. Draw that, the, the, the selfishness or the anger or the bitterness or the resentment that already is within our hearts. It draws it out so we can look at it and be rid of that garbage. Bring it to God to be cleansed and to be healed. You see, when we go through a difficult time, we really honestly have a choice whether to focus on our circumstances, whether to focus on what people are doing to us, and in focusing on them, justify and excuse our own attitude, our own hatefulness, our own resentment, and in the process be consumed, be destroyed ourselves. Or we can look at our own sin, our own dysfunction, look at the stuff that's coming out of us and bring it to our friend, our God, And say, look at this, and let him heal us. Let him heal the wounds that are producing this. And and to cleanse this out of us. That's the choice we have. I remember a story that Corrie Ten Boom tells about uh, how she learned this lesson. She was sitting in a Nazi concentration camp. Filled with anger and seething hatred for these, these men who had destroyed her family and killed so many of her friends. And she's sitting in that concentration camp, hating these Nazis. And her sister Betsy comes and rebukes her. She says, that's sin, that's wrong of you to, to, to act that way. And Corey couldn't believe it. She says, listen, after all these people are doing to me, you come to me and tell me I'm wrong? Where's the perspective here? Where's the balance here? And her sister said, no. You know the Lord. They don't. You have the freedom to, in the midst of this, be filled with His peace and His love and His joy. Of course, that was the time she learned. In the midst, sitting in a concentration camp, camp, that is where she found freedom. And for Joseph, sitting at the bottom of that well is where he found freedom from his arrogance and his, his self-centeredness and his selfishness. So after uh, Joseph has been down there for a while in this pit, his brothers see a, a caravan coming. And Judah, who's the ringleader, he says, Hey, let's not kill the kid. Let's make some money. Let's sell him. So they sell him to this caravan of, of Arab traders headed down to Egypt. Now think about what Joseph must have been feeling right now. How much it must have hurt the cruelty of his brothers and and, and his longing to see his father. 
and his fear of these Arab caravanners and his fear of the unknown in Egypt. This was a horrible time for a young boy. Gets down into Egypt and he's sold as a common slave. A guy by the name of Potiphar buys him. Now Potiphar was a very important, powerful man. He was the head of security for the pharaoh, for the king, which is a very high government post. And Potiphar buys him, trains him, teaches the Egyptian, puts him to work in his home. So, so Joseph is the slave of Potiphar. Here he is, who had dreams of being a ruler. He's the favorite son of the leader of his people. And now he's a common slave in a foreign country. Now what a dismal situation. What a ripoff. This wasn't the way it was supposed to happen. This wasn't the way the dreams said it was going to happen. But how did he respond? Did he become sullen and, 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 and angry, resisting everything, filled with, with complaints and rebellion? No, it's, we're told that he did his work as unto the Lord, honoring his master in everything. And God blessed him and made him successful and, and brought him honor within Potiphar's house. You see, this is one of the keys to Joseph's life. He couldn't control the circumstances around him, but he could control his relationship to God and thereby control his response, the way he looked at these circumstances. He could continue to respect himself and act out of that respect with, with dignity and honor. Well, where did he get such a solid self-image? It wasn't from his mother. She died when he was still very young. And it wasn't from his father. His father taught him that he was better than others, that he deserved the best, made him, him used to being treated favorably. And that kind of self-image shatters under stress. And it sure wasn't from his brothers. They taught him that he was worthless and, and despicable. And that kind of self-image leads only to resignation and despair. Now Joseph's solid self-image came from his relationship with God. His friendship with God. You see, Joseph knew he could trust God. Not because everything was going so wonderful in his life. Not because he could understand how it all fit together. But because as a matter of faith... He knew that God was trustworthy. And that relationship with God was the focus. It was central in his life. He wasn't focused on what others said or what others did or even what others thought about him. His focus was on how to be a true friend to his best friend, a true friend to God. This is a key to Joseph's life. In spite of what you have been told by the modern gurus of our day, there are many circumstances in your life that you cannot control. And these circumstances aren't a result of some impersonal force, some karma. And they're not the result of your performance in a past life. These circumstances are fully under the control of the one who loves you like no one else can and no one else will. God is in control of everything that comes into your life. And no matter what circumstances are out of your control, whether it's your family, your, your marriage, your, your health, whatever is out of control in your life, you can continue to hold on to the truth that God is in control, that He is good. 
You can control that relationship with Him by trusting Him and continuing to treat Him as a friend. You can hold on to the truth that He loves you and that He's good. This is what we're learning this morning. This is what we're learning in life. And really, this is what we've got to teach our children. Because of anybody in our society, the children have the least control of their circumstances. They can't control where they live, what school they go to, what class they get stuck in. They can't control the relationship between their parents. They can't control whether they're abused or taken care of. They can't control much of anything in their lives. And emotionally, they're very vulnerable. They're acutely aware of this. And as much as you want to be there for them, as much as you love them, you must teach them that only, ultimately, God can be there for them. He will be their friend, and He will treat them like a friend with respect and trust and value. And learning to be the friend of God is their only protection in life. So here's Joseph... God has raised him up in Potiphar's house, has made him Potiphar's personal secretary. He's the personal secretary to a cabinet member of the Egyptian government. He has done well for himself. He's really moved up. He's really in an important place. But unfortunately, the roller coaster is just cresting the top, getting ready to head back down. Joseph gets, uh, becomes a victim of sexual harassment. Uh, Potiphar's wife sees him, and starts to put some moves on him. Over in uh, chapter 39, verse 6. So he left in Joseph's care. This is Potiphar. He left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused He said, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Did you hear what he said? Sure, he's concerned about not betraying his master's trust, but he could have got around that one. I mean, he's a prisoner. He's being held there against his will. He doesn't owe this guy anything. He could have rationalized that one away pretty easy. But what he says is, how could I do such a wicked thing against God? You see, for Joseph, it all comes down between him and God. This wasn't between him and his master. It wasn't even between him and his master's wife. It was between him and God. And loyalty to his friend God, treating God as his friend, was the most important thing in Joseph's life. Potiphar's wife won't be denied. She keeps after him. She keeps trying to uh, seduce him. So he avoids her. He tries not to be alone with her. He tries to organize his life to stay away from her. But he's a servant in the house. And one day while he's doing uh, his duties... He ends up alone with her, and she attacks him. She pulls his robe off him. And even though he knows she can destroy him, he still refuses, and he has to leave the house without his robe, because she won't give it back. And she uses that robe as evidence against him. She claims that he tried to rape her. 
When Potiphar gets back, he takes Joseph and throws him in prison. No one believed his denials. There was no one to stand there with him. Now he's in a dungeon, probably being roughly treated. And where's the reward for righteousness? Why is God doing this to him? And there's no way for Joseph to understand this. And I'm sure he asked God, why is this happening? But when no answer came, he chooses to trust his friend. He chooses to to believe that God is good and that God is in control. Now let's not presume that this was easy for Joseph. Don't don't imagine that his his emotions weren't raging, that, that, that his sense of injustice didn't anger him. This was wrong. This was unfair. This was unjust. This had to anger him. But he never lets his emotion or his, his, his sense of injustice turn in on him or turn him against the only one who really cared, the only one who was there for him. I'm sure he asked God, why, what's going on? But when no answer came, he chose to trust God. You see this exact same pattern in King David's life. Uh, the Psalms are full of his questions. God, why? What's going on here? See, David was somebody who suffered abuse as a child and injustice as an adult. And he cries out, God, why are you putting me through this? One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 13. Let me read it to you. And listen to his cry for understanding, his, his, his sense of despair. But also listen to where he gets after he's poured his heart out to his best friend. He poured his heart out to God. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will die. My enemy will say, I've overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he will be good to me. You see, neither Joseph nor David are destroyed by life, by their circumstances. Because neither of them are willing to let those circumstances turn them against their only true friend, turn them to be disloyal and hateful toward him. See, they plead, but at the same time they say, I will trust him. They don't excuse themselves. They don't justify their behavior. They don't feel they deserve to throw a fit and act hatefully toward God or toward themselves or toward others. Why should they? What good would it do? Where is the profit in destroying yourself? Now again, they turn and they say, God is faithful. He is just and he will bring about justice. And they wait for God to again prove his faithfulness. And he always does. So Joseph uh, is in prison now. And again, he responds to his circumstances and to the people around him, not out of the circumstances, not out of his his mistreatment or misfortune, but he responds out of that relationship with God. And God elevates him again. The warden makes him a trustee and eventually entrusts the entire prison 
to his leadership. Verse 22 of chapter 29, or 39, excuse me. It says, So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So now Joseph is running the prison. And while he's running the prison, two of the king, two of Pharaoh's servants get thrown in jail. Oh, the, the baker and the cupbearer. Now, maybe somebody tried to poison the king, and these were the two most likely suspects. But whatever, they're in prison, and they both have a dream. And they're trying to figure out the dream, and they can't figure it out. And Joseph says, well, God can interpret dreams. So they tell Joseph. The, the, the cupbearer says, I had this dream about these three branches, and on these branches were these grapes, and I took the grapes and I squeezed them into a cup and I gave it to the Pharaoh. Joseph said, well, that dream means that in three days that you're going to be released and you're going to be given your old job back. And the baker, when he heard this great interpretation, he said, oh, here's my dream. He says, I uh, have these three baskets of baked goods, all these you know, uh, chocolate eclairs and donuts and jelly fills, and I have them on my head. And the birds came down and took them all. Joseph says, well, uh, that dream means that in three days you're going to be taken out and executed. And it's good that there were were two dreams. If there had just been one, Joseph could have got lucky. But the fact that both dreams happened exactly as he predicted shows that there was no accident, that this was God doing it. After he told the, the, the cupbearer that he was going to be released, Joseph also said, listen, when you get out, file an appeal for me with the Pharaoh. Tell him that I was unjustly taken as a slave. Tell him that I was unjustly thrown in prison. Help me get out of here. You see, jo- Joseph's trust in God and his willingness to, to, to not turn on God did not mean he liked his situation. Nor did it mean that he didn't take appropriate steps to try to change his situation. Filing that appeal was not a breach of faith, was not lack of faith. Where his faith came in, what showed that he had faith is even as he made that appeal, he didn't become panicked and he didn't become overbearing and he didn't become hateful and and pushy and rude and, and all of the other garbage that so often can come out when we demand our rights. No, he continued to trust God, even as he filed that appeal. And when you and I are in difficult or hurtful or wrong situations, there's nothing wrong with trying to change those situations. There's nothing wrong with using the church or or the, the medical profession or the legal profession to try to right and correct the situation. But never lose sight of the fact that Joseph's hope was not in that appeal. His hope was not... In the system, his hope was in God. And it's a good thing, too, because that cupbearer forgot him, paid no attention. But God didn't forget him, even though to Joseph it probably felt that way. See, God was preparing Joseph. There's absolutely no way Joseph can know this. But God was preparing him. First, he put him in Potiphar's family, in his household. Potiphar was a high government official. Joseph got to observe. He got to learn how to run an Egyptian household and eventually an Egyptian business. Then he got to learn how to run a government institution, a bureaucracy, a prison. And he runs that. And his skill and knowledge of how to run things in Egypt is growing. 
See, God always works that, that way. He never wastes experience. Each experience is important in and of itself. It's an opportunity to know God better and to be used by Him to bless others. But it's also preparation for the next thing. Now, in the midst of the hard times, we can't see it. There's no way to figure that out. But we know it's true, and we can remind ourselves of the truth. Anyway, after uh, a while, most of you know the rest of the story. The king has a couple of dreams. None of his wise men can figure them out. And so the cupbearer goes, Ah! Boy, I blew it. I forgot I was supposed to tell you about this guy, this Hebrew kid who was in prison. And when I was in prison, he interpreted my dreams and and that of the baker. And they both came true. So the Pharaoh calls for Joseph. They take him out of jail. They clean him up. They shave him, dress him up nice and put him before the king. And the king says, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, no, I can't. But God can. So the Pharaoh tells him his dream about these seven fat, beautiful cows that get eaten by these seven seriously ugly cows. In the Hebrew, it really emphasized these were were grotesque looking things. They were night of the living dead type cows with skin hanging off them. And they come and they eat the good cows. And then he had another dream where good wheat was eaten by bad wheat. Joseph says, well, this means that for the next seven years there will be a record crop followed by seven years of famine. And then Joseph makes a suggestion. He says, listen, why don't you find a guy who can organize the collection of extra wheat and the food for the seven boon years so that it's available during those bane years, those bad years? You know, one lesson we always learn in life, you never make a suggestion unless you're willing to do it yourself. And sure enough, Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of this. And Joseph does... Such an outstanding job. Joseph has such integrity and wins the trust of Pharaoh. Pharaoh makes him prime minister of all of Egypt. The only one more powerful is Pharaoh himself. So at the age of 30, Joseph has become one of the most powerful men in the world. And it sets the, uh, the, the stage, sets the scene for the final act. Just like God said... There's a famine in the land. Joseph's family up in Palestine starts to get hungry. So Jacob sends down his ten boys to Egypt where he's heard there's food. Now he's still showing favoritism. He still keeps Benjamin home with him. But he sends the other ten down to Egypt. And now Joseph has them. And now is his time for revenge. I remember when I was a little kid. I've got three older brothers. I dreamed of the day I was big enough. And now Joseph can get back at these guys who have treated him so lousy, so cruelly, so heartlessly. These guys were the, the, the source of all of his pain, all of his trouble. But you don't see any of that in Joseph. What you see is that his heart breaks for them. That he's filled with love and tender compassion for them. They don't recognize him. They come, they, they bow down before him just like in the dream. And they ask him for food. Then what Joseph does, I think, is is a little bit curious at first. What he does is he questions them. Then he accuses them of being spies. Then he throws them into jail for three days. Then he takes them out of jail. And he says, listen, to prove you're not spies, 
go get your little brother Benjamin and bring him back. And that will show that your story holds up. And these guys are going, oh no, man. Our father will never send Benjamin. This isn't going to work. And he keeps Simeon in prison. Sends them off. And then he sticks their money back in their bags. And so they get halfway home and they find all this money. And they're really freaking out. They're scared to death. They know that this guy is going to kill them. So they get home. They tell their father. And the father says, oh well. Looks like I've lost two sons. So much for Joseph and so much for Simeon. But they get hungry again. So they've got to go back to Egypt for food. So... His father agrees to send Benjamin back. And when Benjamin gets there, Joseph threatens to make a slave out of Benjamin. Now, if Joseph's not mad, and if he doesn't hate them, why is he putting them through the ringer? Why is he playing all these mind games on them? This sounds like he's getting back at them. But I think this is important. See, Joseph does love them. He, is, he has forgiven them. He is filled with compassion for them. But this is what we call tough love. It wouldn't have done any good for Joseph to just say, Oh, it's okay. It doesn't matter. What Joseph, out of his love, wanted to do was to bring them to the point where they were willing to face what they had done. They were willing to look at their sin and turn from it. Joseph loved them enough to require that of them, to make them do it. And it was terribly painful for Joseph. He kept having to run out of the room and cry, but he loved them enough to do that for them. And that's how we are called to love. As we deal with people who badly use us, who disappoint us, who hurt us, even abuse us, we are called to love them like this. We don't say, oh, it doesn't matter. It matters very much. We, say, we don't say, it's okay. It was not okay. It's wrong. And we're never called to lie and call what's wrong right and what's right wrong. And it's not loving to go along with the lie. It may be the hardest thing you've ever done, but you may need to let that son or daughter go to jail. Or live on their own without your financial help because they've chosen to to reject their relationship with you and not be part of the family. Even though your heart longs to rescue them, to help them. And you may have to confront that spouse who wants to pretend that he or she is still single while still enjoying the benefit of, of, of marriage and family. He or she has to face their decisions and the implications of those decisions, the consequence of those decisions, and the fact that you forced that confrontation, that decision is not unloving, is not cruel, even though it may feel that way. As I said, it felt that way for Joseph. It hurt. And he would run out of the room and weep, but he loved them enough to go through it. And in this case, it was effective. Chapter 42, about halfway through all that Joseph was taking them through. In verse 21, we read, They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But no, you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. And he turned away from them and began to weep. 
But then he turned back and spoke to them again. Again, you see how hard this was for Joseph. And his brothers are starting to get it, but they're still not quite there. They're still blaming each other. They're still trying to get out of it. So Joseph has to keep going and take them through more. But ultimately, finally, Judah, who is the leader, the worst of the lot, gets up and he gives this beautiful speech of repentance. And basically what he says is, listen, we're not guilty of what you're accusing us, but we are guilty nonetheless. We have done a horrible thing. See, he's no longer trying to get out of it. He's no longer blaming. He's speaking for all of them. And they are all facing what they have done. They are all facing their sin. And when that happens, Joseph can't keep it up anymore. He embraces them and welcomes them. See, once they face their sin, there's nothing keeping them apart from a loving relationship. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer because it's literally they were overwhelmed. Then Joseph said, to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to the Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You see, Joseph now embraces them back. There's healing in the family of God once you face your sin. That's the only impediment to healing in the family is when we refuse to admit our sin, to look at it honestly and turn from it. That's why we practice church discipline here, out of love, helping people face what they're doing and the implications of what they're doing so that we can enjoy an unimpeded, loving relationship here in the body of Christ. See, the only thing between Joseph and his brothers was on their side. Joseph had already forgiven them. Now, how could he do that? How could he have forgiven such cruelty and heartlessness, such a, 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 a devastation of his life and plans? How could he forgive that? Well, I think the answer was right there in verse 8. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And in verse 20 of the last chapter, chapter 50, Joseph says, So then, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. See, Joseph was not unaware of secondary causes. He wasn't trying to justify or dismiss what his brothers did. He knew it was wrong. He faced it squarely. He didn't pretend. But he also knew that ultimately, God was the one in charge. God 
was the one in control. God is the final cause of everything that we experience. Joseph knew this. The, the, the sovereignty of God is not just some theological concept for Joseph. It's the foundation of his life. And as a result, he is free to forgive people. He had chosen to trust his friend. He knew that God is in control and that God is good. Nothing is slipping through his finger. Nothing is being overlooked. And that God intends everything for good. Even though there's other people involved. And even though you have to deal with other people in in a wise and loving manner. Even though your heart will ache for them to love you. And it will genuinely hurt when they don't. Ultimately, ultimately, it is between you and God. That's what all of this boils down to. God intends it for good. Even if others intend it for evil, God intends it for good. And what God intends wins out. Romans 8, 28. For God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him. No matter who else is involved, though they're not unimportant, it is between you and God. Temptation is ultimately between you and God. The circumstances are between you and God. And when you realize this, coupled with the fact that God is good, that He is the only friend you can count on, and that you can count on, when you realize this in every circumstance of your life, you will see His goodness. You'll see His salvation. And most critically, you'll grow to love Him. And you'll be able to ride this roller coaster we call life and come through it. Wise, healthy, sensitive, loving people. Now I want to end this with a homework assignment. Go ahead and turn that on over my head. This is a graph of Joseph's life. And it goes up and it goes down. And his emotions went up and down along with it. His experiences went up and down. But go ahead and flip over that other part. But his relationship with God grew more and more intimate. He grew more and more able to trust Him. Now your homework assignment, what I would like you to do, is today after you leave here, is take a piece of paper and graph your life. Make the, the dots for the events in your life that are significant. This may be a horribly painful exercise, but I'd like you to do it. And notice your emotions went up and down with that. And then I'd like you to graph your relationship with God. And if you're like me, your relationship with God followed that graph usually. Up and down. Turning on Him, being His friend. Turning on Him, being His friend. And in fact, for me, my uh, relationship with Him started somewhere in the middle of the graph. And realize, the decisions you made, especially as a child, may have been the best you knew how. May have been the only way you knew how to survive. But you're no longer a child. You're a man or a woman of faith. And you can put aside those childish ways and learn the ways of faith. And finally, what I'd like you to do is to pray through each of those points. To express your heart to God about each of those joys and each of those sorrows. And listen to Him. Talk it over with Him. He's your best friend. And He wants to to share that with you. To know about your feelings. To express Himself to you. You've got an opportunity for a new start, holding on to the truth and holding on to God.